Part 2 of A Brief History of the Order of Dionysus and Paul by Alan Armstrong Dennis Green was born in Bristol in 1904 and died in Thornbury in 1971. Of his formative years, we know almost nothing. The little I have found is that he lived in the Bristol area all of his life. He married Esme Strong in November 1927. Esme was born in Bristol on the 31st of January 1906. They had three children, Peter, Joan and Michael. Dennis was a draftsman working at the Bristol Aeroplane Company, at least before and during the 1939-45 war. At some point in the 1960s, Dennis and Esme separated and in due course she emigrated in the early 1970s to Australia, where presumably she must have died, as yet we do not know the date of her death. I understand that they were both members of the Hermes Temple of the Stella Mecitina, based in Bristol. Dennis for 15 years or so, demitting, I believe, around 1948-49. Esme's membership details are unknown. That the Stella Matutina was an order dedicated to propagating the traditional teachings of the earlier Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn has already been stated, but interestingly, it included a significant number of clergy amongst its members. The Reverend Gerard de Sicchio, one of Dennis's students and his appointed successor, destroyed most of his papers and diaries in the early 1970s. Why he did so, like much of his behaviour, remained a puzzle. It is understandable that he would follow Dennis's instructions and destroy papers that might be relevant to the Hermes Temple. That was, after all, his duty. Indeed, Mrs. Foden, one of the last chiefs of the Hermes Temple, destroyed most of its records when it closed in the 1970s. However, to destroy everything of Dennis's writings, his diaries, his letters and other such writings is, to say the least, frustrating. Consequently, any evidence concerning Dennis's life, the date of his membership of the Hermes Temple, when he joined, what rank he attained and when he left, are now a matter of conjecture. However, Dr. R. A. Gilbert, the foremost historian of the Golden Dawn, clearly recalls the several members he had spoken with in the early 1970s. For example, Mrs. Foden and Ronald Huckman, along with his wife, acknowledged Dennis as a member. Concerning the question when he was a member, Dr. Gilbert reports that the information he acquired from surviving members during the 1960s and 70s suggests he was a member well into the 1950s, but probably not before the war. However, the information is unclear about the pre-war period, as Dennis's stories about Carnegie Dixon suggest a pre-war membership. My views are that he joined in the early 1930s and demitted at some point after the end of the war, possibly 1948-49. My reasons for thinking along these lines are straightforward enough. After the war, Dennis had become engaged with other interests, such as raising a family, and money was tight in post-war Britain. As I understood it from my teacher, Father Morris Saville, one of Dennis Green's students and prior of the ODP until his death in 1991, Dennis had been a member of the Hermes Temple during the 1930s. Reminiscences I heard in conversation with Father Morris 
and there were many such reminiscences, mostly related to what was taking place in the Hermes Temple during the 1930s. Little of what I recall related to the 1950s. One story that stands out is that a significant number of the members of the Hermes Temple were unhappy about Israel Regardi joining in 1933. I understood that the Crowley Association was the main reason for their unhappiness, and a significant number would not turn up when they knew he was going to be in attendance. Such reports are inevitably hearsay, but they are very suggestive. When the Second World War began in 1939, the Hermes Temple meetings were suspended for the duration of the hostilities. Those members who were eligible to fight would have done so, and people such as Dennis, who were in reserved occupations, would have been busy with the war effort. During this lengthy pause in temple activity, his life was filled in part by long hours of work, war-related efforts, and with activities at the Quest Club, which I understood was located at 22 Aberdeen Road, Bristol. The Quest Club was a regular point of contact for many of those who had an interest in esoteric subjects, being frequented by members of the Hermes Temple, anthroposophists, theosophists, among others. That Dennis was a member of a meditation group which met there on a weekly basis is hardly surprising, as it was a popular rendezvous and mixing bowl of esoteric ideas, both new and old. What is interesting, if not surprising, is that the meditation group decided to leave the Quest Club to go to Etlow Road, which is not to say that Etlow Road was secondary, rather, it was just not obviously central to the life the meditation group knew and enjoyed. The notice informs us that the meditation group had been running for a year or more at the Bristol Quest Club, and that the psycho-spiritual healing group began at Etlow Road, at some point after July 1948. We may be confident that it continued for some years after 1948, although where it was based is not clear. Indeed, the evidence suggests that after 1954 it continued under the heading of the Order of St. Raphael. And we may conclude, unless other information emerges to the contrary, that the psychophysical healing group was the prototype of the Order of Dionysus and Paul. Assuming that 1948 constituted the beginning of the proto-order of Dionysus and Paul, then we have approximately seven years to account for before the earliest records available to us begin. The order of Dionysus and Paul record books begin in 1955, and from the documents left to in our care, it is obvious that Dennis studied both personally and with a view to public life. In 1947, he had completed a course in medical electricity with the SMAE Institute of Medical Electricity. This perhaps reflects his work in the psycho-spiritual healing group. Indeed, most of the studies he undertook in the early 1950s reflect the seriousness of this interest. In 1949, he completed a course of studies in metaphysics with the Psychology Foundation of Great Britain. He completed two further courses in 1952, philosophy with the Institute of Life Science and psychology with the Psychology Foundation of Great Britain. Dennis was a curious man with a broad range of interests, which this brief history hopefully will illustrate to some degree. With hindsight, in the post-war years, 
Dennis was clearly moving away from the sphere of influence of the Hermes Temple. In due course, he came into contact with Margiorgus, otherwise known as Hugh George de Wilmot Newman, who was born on the 17th of January 1905 in London, England. His family background was in the Catholic Apostolic Church. His father was a deacon in that church. Hugh George was baptised in the Catholic Apostolic Church at Mare Street, Hackney, London. He was educated at Crawford School, Camberwell, London, and later by private tuition. As a young man, he changed his name by Deedpole to De Wilmot Newman, thus reflecting his mother's maiden name. Newman worked as a clerk in a solicitor's office until 1929. Although it is possible that Dennis may have heard of Margiorgus before, or even met him during the war, the earliest records concerning any involvement date from the early 1950s. In 1953, he appointed Dennis as a minister of the United Presbytery of the Fellowship of Christian Free Churches and began preaching in various churches around Bristol. Mark Yorgus emerged quietly enough, being priested by Bishop James McFall of Belfast on the 23rd of October 1938. However, he later came to prominence when on March 23, 1944, seeking to unite a group of British churches, he established the Western Orthodox Catholic Church. On that day, a deed of declaration united the ancient British Church, the old Catholic Orthodox Church, the British Orthodox Catholic Church and the Independent Catholic Church into a single organisation known as the Catholicate of the West. This event would also have been important news for some of the circles that Dennis moved in. At the end of 1944, it was decided that the Catholicate would bring its ministry, organisation, usages and worship into general conformity with the pattern and model of the Catholic Apostolic Church. The name Catholic Apostolic Church, or the Catholicate of the West, was adopted with the subtitle Western Orthodox Catholic Church, and the Catholic Apostolic Church's liturgy was adopted. Inspired by Margiorgus's vision, Dennis joined the Catholicate of the West in 1954 and was ordained by him in 1955. Their aspirations were full of the hope for change that emerged with the end of that all-consuming war. It didn't last long, though. Their hopes were eroded over the course of time by the intransigence of the major churches, who not only ignored them, but also ridiculed them at every opportunity. To be fair to their critics, it must be said that the antics of many of his clerics provided most of the ammunition for the criticism. Consequently, Margiorgus's grand vision of a united church under the banner of the Catholicate of the West eventually dwindled away in 1968. Another significant event which was to occur in Margiorgus's career was the death of Monsignor Williams, Archbishop of Caerglau. Margiorgus asserted the claim that he was the legitimate successor of Archbishop Matthew and therefore head of the old Roman Catholic Church in England. Alas, none of their branches were prepared to accept him as their ecclesiastical superior. This event disturbed Margiorgus, and he withdrew from public life, arguably to consider his position. Furthermore, the Catholicate seemed to be falling apart. 
Thus, in 1953, he chose to dissolve the Catholicate of the West. Later on, in 1959, the title Catholicate of the West was readopted by what was then called the United Orthodox Catholic Church. However, after a run of disruptive events, the Catholicate was finally dissolved on the 1st of January, 1968. Clearly, Marg Jorgis had failed to control the ambitions of his senior clerics and suffered the consequences. Looking back, he felt able to write, and I quote, At its inception, in 1944, it made one very big mistake, in that it adopted the policy of attempting to unify all the so-called Episcopi Vagantes. Experience has proved this to be not only impossible, but undesirable, for oil and water cannot mix. Many bishops do not desire to be part of a disciplined hierarchy, but prefer to adhere to the schismatic policy of so-called independence, a position utterly unknown to the Church of God. Others again do not accept the Catholic faith, and the Catholicate has suffered much loss of reputation through being, though wrongly, identified in the public mind with the aberrations of such folk. End quote. Were Marg Jorgis and people like him naive hopefuls, or men before their time? If we accept Anson's views expressed in his book, Bishops at Large, then Marg Jorgis and most of the clerics associated with him would have been little more than vain fools on a fool's errand. And so they might have been. Yet, despite having been ridiculed mercilessly by Anson's sardonic wit, arguably with the purpose of seeing them off with their tails between their legs. Curiously, and with the benefit of hindsight, they have had the audacity not only to continue to exist fifty years later, but to have grown in numbers, whilst the major churches have markedly declined in numbers, credibility, and more importantly, in morality. When we consider their behaviour, we should bear in mind that it was not secular ambitions that inspired people such as Margiorgas. They received little by way of reward, of status or financial benefit. Misguided, perhaps, misinformed definitely, overreaching their abilities clearly, and a few of them outright villains too. Yet when all is said and done, most of them were driven or inspired to do good for the sake of God and their fellows. Not so long ago, we might have argued about whose side they were on, Satan's or God's, but today that question can be applied equally to all sides. Indeed, we may justifiably ask, who are the true followers of Christ today? With hindsight, it is easy to see how, in his unsympathetic and unchristian-like book, Anson reflected a common weakness of the church hierarchy at large, which he unwittingly represents as being conceited, arrogant and dismissive of people's aspirations. Yet when all is said and done, in spite of many failings and weaknesses, the numerous and erratic autocephalous churches do express something that is missing in the established churches. Belittle and deride them if you will. They yet continue to grow. What is interesting is the sad fact that in the immediate aftermath of the war, that is the 1945 war, Margiorgas had a wonderful opportunity to further his cause by assisting the many thousands of survivors, both civilians and returning soldiers, if not with their physical injuries, then with their emotional and spiritual problems, 
which were many. To engage in the cure of souls at that time would have gone a long way to restoring people's faith in the church. Instead, Margiolis directed his energies towards developing a hierarchy of what proved to be self-serving clerics who had very little interest in serving their fellow men. Doubtless he did not intend this to happen, but happened it did. Like any other organisation, a church is built around a person, or a team of people. Margiorgus made the mistake of creating an organisation which looked impressive on paper and tried to fit it out with the right people. Unfortunately, the right people all too frequently turned out to be the wrong people. Clearly, he was not a good judge of character and was all too ready to take people at their word, a grave weakness as the history book shows. In short, he failed. He failed to achieve his primary life goal of uniting the Church and, more importantly, restoring the Catholic Apostolic Church, in which he grew up and to which he devoted his life to restore. When I think about the life and work of Margiogus, I frequently reflect upon his obsession with ritual and the absolutely correct procedures involved, style rather than content. He seemed to have been fixated by the outward form rather than the essential inner meaning of a ritual. To be fair, it is a weakness that was not unique to him alone. It was, and is still, endemic among the Anglo-Catholic community, many of whom seek the esoteric facts and significance of ritual without acquiring sufficient understanding. On the other hand, being more concerned with style and technique, I believe Margiorgas stepped into this cul-de-sac and became the miracle that never happened, the king that never was. On the other hand, his ambition to bring about the convergence of different historic lines of apostolic succession was fundamental to his quest for the unity of churches. It may have been an ambition beyond his grasp or ability, but that clearly did not stop him trying. Why did he do it? I believe the short answer rests upon his conviction that he was divinely inspired, that he was moved by the Holy Spirit to achieve what many might think impossible. This is made clear in the following quotation. After the death of Dr. Wilfred Maynard Davison, the last priest of the Catholic Apostolic Church, Margiorgas wrote, The work of the Seventy is now to commence, as foretold in prophetic utterances over all these years. But the work of preparation of those who are to participate therein demands one preliminary, and that is, they must first acknowledge the restored apostolate as having been indeed raised up and commissioned by God. As one whose personal experience enables him to give a sure and certain testimony, I testify that the work of the restored twelve was truly of God, though rejected of Christendom at large in their ignorance and sin. End quote. With regards to established buildings dedicated to the work, it is a matter of fact that Margiorgas could neither afford the grand buildings of the established churches, nor were they readily available for him to let or to borrow. It was, then, to another more traditional approach that he naturally turned, that of house churches. House churches are not a new phenomenon. Clearly, the church at large began its communal life some 2,000 years ago as a house church, 
which simply meant a room or set aside in a dwelling for the faithful to engage in worship. The first house church is recorded in Acts 1.13, where the disciples of Jesus met together in the upper room of a dwelling. Several other passages in the New Testament specifically mention churches meeting in houses. For example, 1 Corinthians 16.19, Romans 16.3 and 5, Colossians 4.15. As the church became established as an institution in medieval Europe, a house church generally signified a private oratory in a dwelling belonging to a person of some means. In late medieval Europe, numbers of communities, such as the brothers and sisters of the common life, were still centred around house churches, rather than a local parish church. From the Reformation onwards, house churches took a more significant part than before in that they also became a focal point of political awakening. Yet in all cases, a house church has been a focal point of a spiritual community. The origins of the modern house church movement in North America and the UK are varied. Some have described the movement as developing out of the Plymouth Brethren, whilst others identify the movement with Anabaptists, Quakers, the Amish, Utterites, Mennonites, Moravians and the Methodists. Some think of the movement as the re-emergence of the Holy Spirit during the Jesus movement of the 1970s in the USA or the worldwide charismatic renewal of the late 1960s and 70s. The truth is, to some degree, they are all correct. Every newly formed spiritual community is moved by the Holy Spirit to join together for worship and for the dispensation of the sacraments in a space set aside, a sanctified space. Returning to Anson for a moment, he was an erudite Roman Catholic, who belonged to a traditional system of worship, wherein important people with appropriate titles were to be found in large and frequently very ancient buildings. These buildings were sanctioned for worship by the Church, and only the Church had the right to sanction them. Such are the traditions of the Church, and local or regional communities were expected to maintain such buildings as necessary. Margiorgus was to all intents and purposes an interloper, like the others mentioned in Anson's book, and was treated harshly, which in Anson's view was absolutely the right thing to do from a corporate perspective, but not at all what Jesus might have done. Today many of these churches have been disposed of because they have proven to be just too large or too expensive to maintain. The important and generally more ancient churches, minsters, Abbeys and cathedrals have been retained, but at a major and ongoing cost. However, 50 years or more later, a different situation has now emerged. With hindsight, we can see that from the end of the Second World War, as resources of time, money and labour have increased in cost, a movement towards smaller buildings and house churches has spread out of necessity. And people, such as Margiorgas, consciously or unconsciously, were part of that movement. More and more people are turning their backs on the parish church institution, some of whom are gathering into smaller groups that in different ways are autonomous. It isn't simply the lack of funds that drives this movement, although that may have often been a factor. 
real sense of belonging to a community is also important. A community in which the personal touch matters. Hansen failed to recognise that emerging fact. This movement, driven by economics and the need for a sense of community, is still of major importance. Among the people referred to in Anson's book, few could afford large buildings, and many of necessity may do with smaller rooms or buildings. With regards to Mark Yorgos and to Dennis Green, Anson writes dismissively, for example, and I quote, on January the 6th, 1961, the administrative headquarters were transferred to a modest dwelling house at 12 Ashley Hill, Ashley Down, Bristol 6. One of its larger rooms was furnished as a pro-cathedral of the supreme hierarchy and its patriarchal throne translated from South Tottenham. The oratory was given the title of the Collegiate Church of the Epiphany and the Three Magi and made a chapel of ease of the Ecclesia Vestusta at Glastonbury. And, although there were now eight dioceses in England and Wales, none of them with the exception of Glastonbury, had so much as a pro-cathedral, and the patriarch himself had to make do with a small domestic oratory at Kew, not having the hospitality of either St. Margaret's Roman Catholic Church in Pope's Grove or any of the nearby Anglican churches. End quote. It seems that in Anson's mind, he considered the endeavours of people such as Margiogas to be deluded or worse. What he did not comprehend was how in the 1950s large numbers of free churches would grow and flourish from humble beginnings. How could he? Many of whom from the outset had decided that a church building must be small, local, accessible and above all affordable. After all, a church is the people, not a building. The terms cathedral, pro-cathedral, abbey, minster, are terms that describe the function of the apparatus, not the majesty of an institution. And here we must draw to a close part two of a brief history of the order of Dionysus and Paul. Thank you.